Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about how, although the deeply racist and conspiratorial wing of the Republican Party has been around for decades, it wasn't always the dominant strain. Today, it clearly is, and in an age of hyperpolarization and with enthusiastic stoking from Trump, that branch of the party is perfectly primed to splinter from our shared reality completely in a spectacular and violent way. Clips today come from The Ezra Klein Show, The Atlantic, Gaslit Nation, The Professional Left Podcast, The David Pakman Show, and The Muckrake Political Podcast. I think that you go back to Eisenhower, he got what, for almost 40% of the African-American vote. It drops off to 7% with Goldwater in 64, and it never comes back. So what does that mean? It means that the Republican Party is predominantly a party that is appealing to white people. Now, there was a period there where we admitted that was a failure. We aspired to do something else. We don't do that anymore. And I think that difference is actually important. But the lack of diversity in the party, I think, is at the root of this. So I use an example. Say you take a 35-year-old Republican school teacher and a 65-year-old Republican hedge fund manager. They probably have pretty similar ideas on taxes. Probably they're both white, and they probably believe in tax cuts. So you take the same in the Democratic Party. First, the odds are much greater that that 35-year-old teacher uh, will be non-white. Statistically, the odds are still great that the 65-year-old hedge fund manager will be white. But they're going to have very different views on taxes, I think. And I think that there's obviously complicated in the Democratic Party and creates tensions, but I think that there's a strength to that. So that lack of diversity in the Republican Party has enabled like the Grover Norquist to come in and force the party uh, or sort of bully the party into this doctrine of tax cuts that is not based in reality. I mean, if you go back to 94, right? Okay. You weren't born yet, but uh, Bill Clinton raised taxes. And in that election, the first election after, you know, 92 election, we made a million ads. I made a million ads saying that these Clinton tax increases were going to lead to economic Armageddon. We were wrong. What followed was the beginning of the greatest period of economic growth in the history of the country. And Clinton was the last president who really wrestled the deficit to something uh, manageable. To me, you have to look at facts. You have to say, look, that worked. And what's followed since hasn't worked with Republican presidents. But there's a failure to adapt to that. And I think it's just, in large part, part of a, a, a greater failure to adapt to the to the world as it is today um, that the Republican Party uh, struggles with. Tell me about your process of personal conversion here, because you mentioned Bill Clinton. As you know, I wasn't born yet. I was born just late in George W. Bush's second term. (laughs) And one of the things about your book that is different from a lot of books like it is there is a subgenre of literature that basically says, I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me. And your book is a conversion narrative where you look back now and say, I should have left the Republican Party. But after that Bill Clinton campaign, you were working for Republicans. After George W. Bush, you're working for Republicans. I mean, it, it's Trump. So so tell me a bit about what it is with Trump that triggers not just a conversion on where the Republican Party is now, 
but on how you understand the Republican Party's history before that and your role in that history? Yeah, it's a great, complicated question. That's why I wrote a book, really. Um, you, re- you really nailed it there. I think that there's always been these two elements in the Republican Party that go back to, say, Eisenhower and McCarthy that played itself out. In many ways, when you get to the Bush campaign, 99-2000, you can argue that Republican, the center-right, was sort of a victim of its own success. So what do I mean by that? Okay, the, the Cold War was over, and let's say we won. There had been a tenet of welfare, you know, crime, welfare, taxes in the Republican Party. Well, Bill Clinton instituted welfare reform. He famously ran on ending welfare as we know it. Crime increased greatly and continued to increase. And taxes were much lower, certainly, than the 70% they had been once. So it sort of left the Republican Party struggling with what does it mean to be a conservative? So I think that then Governor Bush really looked at this, and that was part of the whole construct of compassionate conservatism. So then Bush gets elected. What's his first piece of legislation? The major piece, No Child Left Behind. And if you look at that photograph, it's extraordinary today. I mean, he's signing the No Child Left Behind with Ted Kennedy standing over his right shoulder. I mean, that would be submitted like in a war crimes trial today. So uh, there was a, a belief that we had that there was this dark side, people like myself, dark side to the party, but it was a recessive gene. And that the inevitability of the party was to become a more inclusive, a bigger party that we had to change and we would change. Now, all of this gets sidetracked when Bush becomes a wartime president and you don't have another Republican presidency until Trump. So you go through this process of the autopsy, so-called, after Romney lost, which I think Ryan's previous deserves credit for instituting that analysis. It's always hard for any group to be self-critical. What was it? It was pretty obvious. Party had to expand more appeal to non-whites, younger voters, women. But that was presented not only as a political necessity, but a moral mandate, that if you're going to earn the right to govern this big, confusing, loud, changing country, you needed to be more like it. So then Trump comes along, and you can almost hear this audible sigh of relief as everybody just throws that out the window. It's like, thank God, we don't have to pretend we care about this stuff. We can just win (laughs) with white voters which to me just proves you really didn't mean this. And you have the ascension of this element of the party that was racist, that was a white grievance. And it's just an entirely different approach to government, approach to life, approach to politics, just as McCarthyism was different than Eisenhower. So we thought we were dominant, and I think we turned out to be the recessive gene, and we lost. For decades, being a Republican meant believing in conservative ideas like limited government, free markets, and American exceptionalism. America is freedom. Freedom of speech. Freedom of religion. I'm a proud member of my party, but I'm more more than that. I'm an American. Even though Trump has pursued things that make him seem like an old-school Republican, like tax cuts and entitlement reform, he continues to surround himself with advisors who want to tear down the old GOP establishment. So what does it mean to be a Republican in the age of Trump? And is Trumpism just a phase, or could it be the beginning of a major realignment in American politics? To understand the changes taking place in the Republican Party now, it helps to go back to the last time the party went through a major transformation. 
The first half of the 20th century, the GOP was more ideologically diverse than it is today. The party had many conservatives, but it also had liberal Republicans who supported things like social security, infrastructure spending, and civil rights. It was Eisenhower, a Republican, who forcibly desegregated schools in the South. But in 1964, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater shocked the political world when he won the Republican nomination by running on an unabashedly conservative platform. If you listen to his acceptance speech now, the rhetoric will feel familiar. Rather than useful jobs in our country, our people have been offered bureaucratic make-work. Rather than moral leadership, they have been given bread and circuses. At the time, Goldwater was widely seen as a radical. His victory in the Republican presidential primaries was so controversial that Nelson Rockefeller, a moderate, stood up during the convention and gave a blistering speech denouncing Goldwater and his fellow conservatives. These are people who have nothing in common with Americanism. The Republican Party must repudiate these people. But Goldwater's brand of politics prevailed. His book, The Conscience of a Conservative, was a bestseller in the 1960s and influenced a whole generation of Republican leadership, from Ronald Reagan to George W. Bush to Ted Cruz. Goldwater's conservative movement ended up dominating Republican politics for 50 years. Could Trumpism dominate the next 50? So far, the GOP's old guard is entrenched enough that the Trump administration is still pursuing some of its conservative policies, from cutting the corporate tax rate to repealing Obamacare. But the old guard could eventually be replaced as a new generation of mini-Trumps, people in the mold of Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller, rise to positions of prominence in government and media. Some high-profile conservative pundits like Tucker Carlson are already remaking themselves in the image of Trump. It's been pretty obvious for a while now that the Trump-Russia story is essentially bogus. So why are the other news channels still behaving like the stupid little conspiracy tale is the moral equivalent of the Nuremberg trials? For now, the main issue they face is that their ideology isn't quite as clear-cut as conservatism. They don't have a best-selling pamphlet to inspire a new generation like Goldwater's. But there is a coherent philosophy that's starting to be built around Trumpism. The Trumpist Republicans want the GOP to be a more populist party. They believe in economic nationalism, meaning America should withdraw from the world stage and put up trade barriers. They oppose Paul Ryan-style fiscal conservatism and condemn costly military interventions like Bush's invasion of Iraq. Many on the left and right want to write off Trump as an anomaly in American politics. And to be fair, it's hard to argue that he's really governed like a populist nationalist so far. But political revolutions take time. In 1964, Goldwater got destroyed, winning only a few southern states. But in the decades that followed, Republicans built on Goldwater's vision. In 1980, Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter by using Goldwater's playbook and governed based on many of his principles. You're, I think, maybe missing one aspect of it, which is why were the people who you describe as neoconservatives or people who were attached to the idea that there was a special role for America in the world, what was motivating them? And very often it was the, what was motivating them. And again, these are my friends. And actually, I should say me, you know, in this sense, I, I although I was have not been a Republican for many years, this this in this I have in common with them was this belief in democracy you know, as an idea, as an ideal, um, as something that America could help share with other countries or could help 
um, bring to the world, not necessarily, you know, in fact, usually never by, you know, through through invasion, but more through the power of example, through the, the kind of role that we played during the Cold War in Eastern Europe, for example, which I, you know, witnessed and remember. And if you're attached to the idea of democracy, if you think that um, that 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 is the thing that makes America special, then Donald Trump was an abomination and remains an abomination because, you know, what he is, <laughs> what he seeks to be, um, you know, the way he maintains power is through undermining the faith that Americans have in their own political system. And this beginning with birtherism and continuing now with the um, the fake story about about stolen elections. Um, if you look at the nev- so-called never-Trumpers, you'll find often that that's the distinction, is that people who were attached to the idea of democracy are the ones who just were never able to, um, you know, were never, were never able to accept Donald Trump. I mean, if you were just, ex- if it was, if for you it was all about American power and the military and realpolitik, then maybe you felt a little bit differently about it. But if what you were really interested in was democracy, then Donald Trump was just never, ever going to be acceptable to you. On that very specific note, I, I've been doing myself a lot of interviews in the past week or two, and I find that I keep being out of emotional step with the people I'm talking to because this may be changing now as the Republican Party coheres around the stolen election narrative. But I have found this whole era, and even in many ways this election, really depressing. And, and, and the reason is that Donald Trump doesn't strike me as a difficult challenge. He's not a competent autocrat where you have to choose between effective governance and and your liberties. He's not a strategic autocrat who hides his narcissism or his nepotism. He's not a beautiful speaker who cloaks his lust for power in glittering ideals. And yet the Republican Party fell so easily to him. It fell so easily to the most crude, bizarre, libertinish, secular, erratic, insulting person you could imagine, including, by the way, a lot of people in the Republican Party who he insulted, Ted Cruz, whose wife he insulted, Lindsey Graham, whose phone number he gave out. I mean, the whole thing is wild to me. So what do you think happens? I mean, what do, you, what do we take from this as predictive when a more competent, capable, would-be autocrat or demagogue emerges? I think the possibility of a more competent autocrat emerging four years from now is one that cannot be excluded. Uh, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, you know, it's the the, the, the shoddiness of Trump, but also the, the low stakes. I mean, the senators who, who were afraid to vote for Trump's impeachment, you know, despite the fact that he was abusing American military aid in order to bribe a foreign leader to launch a fake investigation of his political opponent. I mean, it was the most shoddy crime. It was a, you know, it was something that, you know, there was, there's no question, you know, a, a previous generation of, of politicians would have, would have chucked a president out for, you know, what was at stake? You know, they were going to lose their Senate seats and they might end up teaching at Harvard, you know, or they were going to, suffer a little bit in the polls or, you know, the president might attack them on Twitter. I mean, it wasn't like they were going to go to prison, you know, or they were going to suffer in some real way for defying the president for doing the right thing, you know, and yet all of them went along with it. So I I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that we very badly underestimated in the previous decade, probably how weak some of our political institutions are, certainly how weak the political parties are. 
uh, how the, how they no longer serve as um, you know filters for extreme ideas, but also how how little faith Americans had in their own system. A fairly recent poll showed that twenty percent of Americans, when asked, say that they wouldn't mind living under military dictatorship. That's a you know that's a lot of people uh, who no longer have that much faith in our political institutions and how they work. It's a long you know longer conversation than we probably have time for today to decide to decide to understand why and how that happened. And there's a role that was played by changes in the media and social media. There's a role that was played by the financial crisis. There's a role that was played by politicians themselves. But are Americans prepared to accept some kind of autocrat? I mean, I think, unfortunately, the experience of the last four years, and even, as you say, of the last week, shows that many of them are. For many, the new normal has a switching from the usual business casual button-ups and jeans to soft-knit polos, tees, joggers, and active shorts. And whatever men's basics you need, Mac Weldon has you covered with unmatched comfort and fit. To be honest, I've had a bit of a head start on the comfortable work-from-home look, and my strategy is to keep things very minimal in both style and quantity, which means that everything gets worn a lot and tends to wear out. So Mac Weldon came along at just the right time because my warm and comfortable wear for the winter could use a refresh. Mac Weldon has a wide selection of items that hit that sweet spot between comfortable and stylish. Plus, they feature a wide range of customized high-tech fabrics. So give them a try for their work-all-day comfort and their leave-the-house-without-having-to-change style. For 20% off your first order, visit macweldon.com slash best and enter the promo code BEST. That's macweldon.com slash best and promo code BEST for 20% off. Mac Weldon, reinventing men's basics. Over the past five years, and well before that, there have been countless studies of the psychology of Donald Trump. They come from journalists, acquaintances, academics, family members. He has been a public figure for over 40 years, and his actions are easy to predict. We know he is sadistic. We know he is without conscience. We know he sees all relationships as transactional and all human beings as disposable. This is well known and understood. What we don't understand is how people sit by and watch and why people who could have stopped him and his crime cult and can slow it down right now have refused to do so. These people are the good Germans of America, and you will find them in big tech, big business, the military-industrial complex, the mainstream media, the intelligence community, the Vichy Democrats who refuse to use the full powers of the House, and in the GOP. Although Republicans have become overtly bad Germans for years, since they are fully on board with Trump's white supremacist crime cult. The phrase good Germans refers to the Germans living in the Third Reich who enabled Hitler and his Nazi regime, yet remained in denial that they were doing so. Or alternatively, they did know but they put on a show of respectability. They were just following orders, they'll say, or they'll claim they didn't have a choice. Fascism is about the limitation of choices. 
The way to prevent fascism is early, before you run out of options. Unbelievably, the U.S. is still on the early side of fascism, though it is much farther along than we were even a year ago. That means people with power still have a choice, and they are choosing cowardice, complicity, and cruelty. This is a choice that they are making. They made their choice, and we at Gaslit Nation made ours. The other day, someone brought up the famous quote where Trump said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose his supporters. I wrote back, The real question of that quote, though, isn't why do his followers support him? It's who gave him the gun. It's who loads the gun. It's who refuses to arrest him after the murder. It's who creates the propaganda to whitewash the murder. That's why he can shoot anyone on Fifth Avenue. this in the summer of 2016 before Donald Trump, the possibility of Donald Trump winning an election mm -hmm. was discussed. And I did not think Donald Trump was going to win. I'm, I'm going to fess up to that. I mm -hmm. didn't predict that. Um, but I did, I did notice this in the summer of 2016. And this fell right in with what we have been talking about on the podcast for since 2010. Yeah. So for six years, we've been talking about this. And so this this needed to be said about Trump before he was elected. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed a number of media outlets calling the Republican campaign for president Trumpism? Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned on last week's show, that the recurring mentions of Trumpism have exploded this week. Yeah, you track those. Right. I do track those. Mm -hmm. And it it. You calling it Trumpism and what's going to happen to the Republican Party? Is it going to remain Trumpism or is it going to go back to being the Republican Party as if they are not the same thing? It isn't Trumpism. It's the Republican Party. And it has been the Republican Party for far longer than Donald Trump has been running for president. I showed a video in this post from July of 2015 in which CNN's Allison Camerota asks a focus group of Trump and leaning toward Trump voters why they like him. If you've ever watched any of these average Trump voter panels, you know their trademarks. He speaks his mind and says what I am already thinking. Illegals are the number one issue on my mind. Mm -hmm. He'll make America great again. The reason the news media puts these panels together is because these panels are made up of registered Republican primary voters. Mm -hmm. They didn't just register to vote this year or fall off a truck into the Republican Party. They voted for Bush twice. They voted for McCain-Palin. They voted for Romney. And they're tired of losing and being embarrassed by their votes so embarrassed that they fell for a Tea Party rebranding just so they would not have to associate themselves with George W. Bush. And then the Republican establishment had the nerve to suggest they vote for George W. Bush's brother. <laughs> and really, Jeb was the media's frontrunner. 
Jedi. in 2015, 2016. He, he was, was going to be the one. And he then when the he pre- failed, it was going to be Rubio. So definitely going to be Rubio. Let's just definitely going to be Rubio. That's what that's <sighs> what uh, David Brooks said many many times. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump lies about a lot of things. But he is not lying when he says he received more Republican primary votes in the 2016 election than any other candidate in U.S. history. That statistic is skewed by how many Republicans voted for someone else other than Trump. But the fact that the race boiled down to Trump versus not Trump is not helpful to the Trumpism argument. It was Republican voters that selected Trump as their candidate in state after state after state. The Beltway News Media, remember, I wrote this in 2016. The Mm -hmm. Beltway News Media is terrified that the Republican Party will be forever tarnished by this Trump candidacy. Why? Because Trump as Republican busts open their both sides myth that both sides of the political spectrum are equally bad, equally wrong and right, equally to be blamed for the mess in Washington. Both siderism protects the Beltway's need for an election horse race, as well as a view from nowhere in which the media is outside of the race altogether and just an observer of the process. Both siderism picks a side, and that side is the side that's willing to lie repeatedly to win elections and policy points. So if a Democrat says, let's try to pass the Affordable Care Act and give seniors access to end-of-life counseling and hospice care if they want it, mm-hmm. and the entire Republican Party went, Obamacare is death panels. Mm-hmm. They want to kill grandma. Obama isn't a real American or a legitimate president. And the Beltway media said, both sides race to the bottom. Uh-huh. Donald Trump is such an outlier on the lying and the pathological narcissism scale that it's easy to think, well, he's not really a typical Republican. But Trump won Republican primary after primary by appealing to Republican primary voters. And he did that by echoing what they were hearing on Fox News all the time. Mm -hmm. And Trump is not an outlier on the insane rhetoric that has accompanied Republican talking points, particularly on immigration. Remember when Fred Thompson during the 2008 presidential race said, uh, we are now living in a nation that is beset by people who are suicidal maniacs and want to kill countless innocents. That was Fred Thompson. That wasn't Donald Trump. Now, now I just want to interject that it's no yeah. fair remembering things, but please, <laughs> please continue. Remember when Republican Representative Steve King said, Calves the size of cantaloupes. They're hauling 75 pounds of marijuana across the desert. All these children of illegal immigrants are all pot importers. And Mike Huckabee was at a Republican presidential debate suggesting that UPS and FedEx knew how to track packages. Why don't we outsource immigration to UPS and FedEx Mm -hmm. so they can label people? Let's not forget that Donald Trump is not even the first Republican whose judgment was called into question by U.S. generals for using rhetoric that harms national security. In 2009, I mean, there I go remembering shit again. Yeah, Yeah, naughty, naughty. uh, A group of retired generals lambasted Liz Cheney and Vice President Dick Cheney for creating hysteria concerning the closing of the prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Retired General David Maddox said, Some of the fear issues that are being raised in this are really unfortunate. It gets people excited about things they shouldn't be excited about Mm -hmm. and impedes doing what is critical to this country. We take a setback internationally every time somebody, whether it's the former vice president or his daughter, comes out and says the things that they say. And you can see how that worked out. Guantanamo is still operating largely well, thanks to Dick Cheney. And, and a, a brief aside, um, when Dick Durbin, our senator Dick Durbin, found out about the torture program mm-hmm. and, and said, this is not something U.S. soldiers should do. This is, this is Nazi shit. This is Pol Pot stuff. Mm-hmm. There was a united freakout on the right that screamed, how dare you compare the noble military of Our the troops. greatest nation on earth yeah. to Nazis. And they flogged him into, into apologizing. Well, now we have, what, six years later, eight years later? Yep, they're Nazis, all right. The Republican yeah. Party are fascists through and through. And and everyone who called them on it before the never-Trumpers decided to make it fashionable was treated to the same abuse, which was, how dare you? How dare mm-hmm. you even, even mention fascism in the same voice as the party of Lincoln, you sleazy terrorist-loving scumbags. Everyone knows the basic idea that in order to be a well-rounded news consumer, we should be reading and listening to a variety of media sources. The problem is about how to actually make that happen, and that's why there's Ground News, the first news comparison app that gives you instant access to the entire spectrum of news sources for every news story. Don't read one headline when you can read a dozen headlines all describing the same story and then choose which version deserve to be read in full. I've completely ditched my old news app, and I can genuinely feel the difference in the depth and breadth of my news consumption habits. Ground News is free to everyone, but their revenue model is a subscription service where they just have a few premium features behind the paywall. But most importantly, they don't have any ads. They're completely different from other news curation apps because they are not trying to harvest as much of your attention as they can get to sell to advertisers. They're just trying to make you as informed as possible to prove the worthiness of their product. When you're ready to sign up, head to ground.news best for a discount. As an exclusive limited time offer, you can sign up today and get seven days free of their premium service. Listeners of Best of Left also get an extra 25% off their membership, making it less than $2 a month billed yearly. So what are you waiting for? That's ground.news best, ground.news best. I don't think Trump himself is personally very interesting. And my book is not about autocrats. It's about the people who work for them, who create them, who sell their myth and their legend and who promote them. Um, And who those are. And one of the reasons I wrote about them, as you say, is because some of them in some countries are people who I know. Um, And so it seemed like I maybe I had I had some insight. I mean, both in that book and in a couple of articles I've written on a similar theme in The Atlantic, um, I've tried to stay away from sweeping vast generalizations. You know, they are all like X or they are all like Y. Um, there's a famous historian of Vichy who who once wrote that um, he would have to write, he, he could never write a book about collaboration. He would write about collaborationisms 
because people's path towards this kind of political change is is so different depending on on their personality and background and 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 their interests. Um, the only the only sentiment I think that you can say that links them, and here we're you know we're talking about people who were once part of the center right or the in my case the anti communist movement in Poland or Reaganism or Thatcherism and who bang, who began to change in a in a in a different direction over the past decade or so. The one thing that does tend to link them is disappointment. Um, so these are very often people who are disappointed and they are almost always disappointed with their society, whether it's the dullness and superficiality of modern democracy, whether it's the demographic change that they don't want or like, whether it's the decline in morals and values that they see all around them, whether, you know, in the case of Britain, it's the, it's the you know, England's loss of, a, of its voice in the world and its reduction to a medium-sized country that acts, in, you know, together with other European countries rather than striking out on its own as it once did. Um, so it's a feeling of loss or disappointment. And sometimes it's quite an extreme form of disappointment. You know, it's a kind of despair. You know, my society has ended. I, mean, I, I, I wrote a little bit about someone who was a friend of mine, uh, Roger Scruton, who was a British philosopher, who wrote a really extraordinary book about England, his country. Uh, he's he's English English um, conservative writer. He wrote about England. He you know he wrote an you know it's an I'm writing an elegy to my country. I'm writing I'm writing about a country that has died. I'm going to tell you about the values of the country that used to exist. In other words, he's someone who had already moved beyond the idea of decline or decay, and to the idea that it was gone. And I think anybody who has that view of the contemporary world, that it's over, it's finished, my civilization is dead and gone, you know, my society is decayed, that view leads you in, almost inevitably into a kind of radicalism. And you can have that view on the left too, by the way. This is not necessarily a, at all unique to the right. It's just that I wrote about the right because that's, that's the piece of it that I know. But if you have that feeling that it's over, then you know, then why wouldn't you try to smash everything? If everything's a disaster, if civilization is dead, if if morality is declined, you know, if traditional values can't be recovered, then you might as well have whatever you want to call it, the Flight 93 election or the let's change the system or let's let's replace the elite with a new elite. Those are all the same kinds of sentiments. So, but you, I mean, it plays itself out in different ways. Um, you know, you can find people who are also personally disappointed. So whatever it is about the current political circumstances isn't good for their careers. And sometimes that's a factor. You know, they see that by aligning themselves to a movement, they can, I don't know, become more popular or make more money or have more power. And sometimes that's that's it. And, and sometimes it is quite philosophical. You know, the this, you know, the, my civilization is dead and it, I'm, I'm now going to be part of smashing it. And that's usually the link that you find, particularly, on, you know, on the most radical part of the right, as well as the most radical part of the left. I've talked before about the mind virus that is Trumpism. And I've talked about the very real impact that watching Fox News and listening to Trump has on people. 
An economist YouGov poll finds that 86 percent of Trump voters believe Joe Biden has not legitimately won the election. Eighty six percent of Trump voters fell for the Trump voter fraud scam, which, according to reports we got yesterday, Trump doesn't even really believe and is using just to pay off campaign debt. Trump built this up for months, saying it will be rigged. Voter fraud is for a voter. A vote by mail is fraudulent, etc. And it worked. In a Washington Post poll, more than 75 percent of Trump voters believe Trump should not concede. So Trump does have the support of his base to continue not conceding, which is a reminder is merely a formality. Concession is not legally relevant. Now, even more interesting is that when asked whether Trump should contest the results of the election in court, about 85 percent of Trumpists believe Trump should go to court. Remember, the latest is Trump doesn't even think it will work. And when asked whether it will work to change the election results and hand Trump a victory, Trumpists are marginally more realistic. But 60 percent of Trump voters believe what Trump is doing will get him a second term. I really need you to understand that what we are seeing right now, even though Joe Biden is moving forward with appointments and his transition team, a coronavirus task force, the election is over. Foreign leaders are calling Joe Biden. They're already setting up transition with Joe Biden. More than half of Trump voters expect that Donald Trump will be inaugurated to a second term on January 20th. This is a mind virus. Donald Trump succeeded not in winning the election, but in using months of rhetoric about mail in ballot fraud and rigged elections to convince most of his supporters that it was rigged and that Joe Biden didn't really win. But then we really need to get to the next part, which I mentioned earlier this week. If you watch Fox News at night, every anchor is saying this stuff. It was stolen. There was fraud, illegal votes, illegal ballots. If you only get your news from Fox News and you look at Trump's Twitter, why would you think anything else? Their go to news sources are telling them exactly that. And 86 percent of Trump voters fell for it. 86 percent of Trump voters is more than 60 million people. 60 million people think Joe Biden didn't really win. These are doctors, your kids, teachers, accountants, waiters, truck drivers. You don't get 60 million from, you know, unemployed basement dwelling Al Qaeda, if you understand what I'm saying. Now, if you went and you interviewed some of these 60 million and you asked them, oh, OK, you think Trump actually won. By the way, why did you vote for Trump? What first term successes are you most proud of? What issues did you care about? Their answers will make no sense. And then you'll have a better understanding of how 86 percent fell for this voter fraud uh, uh, storyline. But I want to go back to where we started the week on Monday. As ignorant as they may be, as unempathetic as they may be, whatever you want to say about these people, whatever you want to believe about these people, there's 72 million of them. Okay. Biden barely won when it came to the margins in the key three states that ultimately won this for him. We have to do something about those Trumpists. I don't yet know what the answer is. And some people wrote to me saying you really should be presenting a solution. Well, I don't have one yet. I'm being upfront. I don't know. This is a real problem. It's a mind virus. Okay, 72 million, 60 million believe that Trump actually won. I don't yet know the answer, but as soon as I have some ideas, I will come to you.
even people who don't like professional wrestling or think it's ridiculous, you need to understand uh, a lot of the rhetorical stuff that goes on in it. And and so I'm, I want to give everyone a quick little dive into this. In wrestling, which by the way is a total grift, you have a bunch of people who are pretending to have fights in front of people who pay to watch them have fights. Right. And by the way, if, if you and your competitor who you talk backstage and talk about how you're going to have a match and you talk backstage about how you're going to insult each other, if you do a good job, people will pay you more money to watch you fake fight. Right. That's called heat. That's called trying to get an audience hot after this stuff. Well, the grift of wrestling is divided up into what's called works and shoots. A work is where you and I have a conversation. It's like, I'm going to do this, you do that, and it's going to take their money. Then there is the rubes in the crowd. We'll call them marks. You know, like any any con job, they are the marks. They don't know what's going on. They're, they're like a chain-smoking grandma saying, that fight's real, right? So that's who we're going to take their money. Smarts are people who know that. They know what the secret thing going on is, right? Well, so something has happened in the past few years, in the past few decades, where all of a sudden, because of the internet and because of, of rising media, wrestlers and their audiences, their audiences know it's fake, right? They, 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 they know that it's scripted. But now they're really fascinated by how it's scripted. They're really fascinated by what conversations are taking place to... Who's getting a push? Who's winning a belt? Who's winning the match? Who's w- making the most money? It's like palace intrigue, right? Does this sound mm-hmm. familiar, by yeah. the way? Oh, yeah. Because we're, because now we're an entire nation. Politically, we're an entire nation of pundits. We all know that it's all fake. We know that all the politicians are getting paid and they're getting their power. And what we're concerned with is, well, Jared's on the inside right now. Steve Bannon's being pushed away. Giuliani just made his case. Ivanka's in there doing this, right? That palace intrigue is that next level stuff. Well, Trump is a total grifter. And his entire time as a politician has been a work. He's been he's been pretending to be a populist. He's been pretending to be for the people. He doesn't give a shit for the people, right? Well, what ends up happening is in wrestling, even the competitors are like backstage and they're like, I'm going to insult you and you're going to insult me and then we're going to fight. Well, what happens when they're working with each other is occasionally they'll do a thing called working themselves into a shoot where suddenly the insults, something hits a little funny. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, one person gets mad at another person. And all of a sudden, it turns into a real thing. Right now, Donald Trump saying that the election has been stolen, it's a work. He's trying to he's trying to get all the money that he possibly can from his supporters to pay off his debt and probably to try and launch this entire news uh, organization, which, by the way, like... You want to get people away from Fox News, tell them Fox News helped steal the election. Meanwhile, Republicans have to win the Georgia runoff. Meanwhile, Republicans have to maintain the support of Trump supporters. So what are they doing? They're working the crowd, right? They're saying, oh, I think this election was stolen. Mitch McConnell doesn't think this election was stolen. Ted Cruz doesn't think this election is stolen. They're not stupid. They're not falling for this Mark bullshit. They're smart to it. But guess what happens? If this thing gains traction somehow or another, you have a real coup. Right. Like what ha- if 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 this thing keeps going or if you don't have a coup, you have a bunch of you have a bunch of marks 
who back in the old days, when the bad guy came to the ring, they would try and punch him as he walked down the crowd. You have a bunch of marks who think that they're in a civil war. They think that they need to attack Democrats in order to save the country because this this con man keeps telling them that they're under attack. So this idea of what this grift, how it works, is what we're watching play out now. It's both real and fake. It's both legitimate and a con at the exact same time. Right. And the danger being that the marks could take over and actually affect, you know, become the the monster. It's almost like in the producers where, not to ruin this for anybody, but, they, you know, they create the worst show possible to have it t- tank and they get the insurance money. But instead, it becomes a comedy and everyone loves it. It becomes successful that way. And they have no idea, like they had no conception of that when it started. Um, here's one thing I wanted to throw out there because when we start talking about professional wrestling and how it's fake or how it's not, I instantly remember, and this is like 1984, uh, 2020 episode, they interviewed some of these professional wrestlers and this guy, John Stossel, and he's asking them, they're showing how to do it, like they show how he cut his forehead and then very with a really thin razor so that it starts bleeding later in the match as if it, he got hit when it wasn't really getting hit. Uh, I believe the phrase was, Red is green. Red means green, baby. Yeah. And so, but at the end, when he goes, is it fake? And they're in the bowels of a stadium. Dude hauls off and just hits him as hard as he can on the side of the head. Knocks him down. He gets up. He does it again saying, is this fake? Now, I have to tell you, I think that that might have changed some hearts and minds for a little while. People thinking, oh, you know what? Maybe this really is real. Look what he's willing to do and you know, beat this uh, poor reporter who I think, is, if I recall correctly, was complaining about his hearing not working real well because he boxed his ears to do that. So that's another kind of interesting thing where th- th- that also is playing out to some degree here, too. Well, okay. Are you ready? Because yes. we're getting ready to go. We're getting ready to go into that. That was introductory level wrestling. Let's go to moderate level wrestling. Okay. Now remember the terms, right? A work is a cooperative grift. It's a lie that we're engaging in, right? A shoot is real, right? It's actually happening. Like this is legitimate. There are worked shoots. So, When the con men realize that the audience knows that it's fake and they find out that the audience is actually really sort of seduced by shoots. So there's an entire. So and at this point, when we go up to the moderate level, we don't just have smarts who know what's going on and marks who have no idea. We have what's called smarks who are people who know that wrestling is fake. But they think that fight right there is real. That one's real. That one's fake. That one's fake. That one's bullshit. That's a real fight. They're actually fighting. And the wrestlers up their game. And what ends up happening is they're in a reality within a reality. I say this, by the way, as I'm looking at my calendar. This weekend, Saturday, in fact, there is a major march on Washington. Do you know about this? Mm Mm-mm. There's a major march on Washington, which is like, don't let them steal the election march. And it's not Trump and it's not the Republican Party, Nick. It's Uh. all of the grifters underneath Trump. It's all of the YouTube people. It's all of the the social media people. It's all of these people who like, it's almost like Trump is like a, a shark. And you know, the little fish that swim beneath the shark, right? It's all of the people who have made their money from it. They know the election wasn't stolen. 
They know it. They know full and well that there's not some computer program that did it and that the Sharpies didn't take it. They know. But what are they doing? They're doing this entire grift in a worked shoot type situation to make themselves more prevalent, to make more money, and to keep the con going. They know. And by the way, who is the biggest smark of them all? A person like Alex Jones. Alex Jones knew for years what he was peddling was conspiratorial bullshit. Until what happened? He stopped knowing. And he just went with it. And he just lived within it, right? And all of a sudden, he didn't know who he was anymore. And he was lost in that reality. This is really, really weird stuff. But it explains who Donald Trump is, what Trumpism is, and what these followers are about. They're lost in a reality that has absolutely nothing to do with our own. And and the grift just keeps going. They're going to go with him to this network. They're going to pay all of his debts. They're going to continue treating him like he is the president of the United States of America. They're lost in it. They are just fundamentally lost in this reality that's been created. We've just heard clips today, starting with Ezra Klein speaking with Stuart Stevens about how the compassionate conservatism he believes in turned out to be the recessive gene in the GOP. A video from The Atlantic discussed the parallels between the party realignment in the wake of Barry Goldwater and the potential permanent realignment after Trump. Ezra Klein also spoke with Ann Applebaum about the GOP becoming the party of Sarah Palin rather than of John McCain. Gaslit Nation discussed the good Germans of the GOP who are rationalizing their support for a degenerating movement. The Professional Left podcast took the position that Trump isn't different enough from mainstream Republicans for his governing style to be called Trumpism. Ezra Klein continued his discussion with Ann Applebaum on the topic of radicalization among the likes of cultural conservatives in the U.S. and U.K. The David Pakman Show highlighted that 86% of Trump voters think that Trump won the election, setting up a massive break in perceived legitimacy, and the Muckrake political podcast explained the separation from reality of Trump supporters through a professional wrestling metaphor. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard two bonus clips, both from the Ezra Klein show. He's had a lot to say about this, I guess. They continued discussing the sad, strange conversion of Lindsey Graham and how that happened and some theories as to what's behind that and a commentary on how it is the Republican support of Trump rather than Trump himself that is the real threat to the country. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes, and they are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content, which includes bonus episodes where I or uh, Amanda and I come together to discuss a variety of things conversationally, if you want all of that delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information and every request is granted, no questions asked. And now we'll hear from you.
Hi, Jay. It's Dave from Olympia. I am playing catch-up again. I just listened to episode 1376 about stories and myths, and your very kind words at the end, following up on my response to your original thoughts about the need for legitimacy. But my obsessive need for nuance is, is compelling me to make the call. Just what gives legitimacy is what the people at the time think gives legitimacy. So at the time when the bloodline of kings was what really, really mattered, yeah, people would fight and die for quote unquote a legitimate king because they had the pure bloodline or whatever, but that's what everyone it was that was the common myth that everyone bought into. Nowadays, I mean, I think it's overstating to say that our measure of legitimacy today is that the leader legitimately represents the will of the people. The leader has to win the election, right? And that is vague and it gives the opportunity to be all kind of shenanigans. But that's really, I think, what the majority of Americans see today as what conveys legitimacy. Right, the, the winning of the election and whatever weird rules are in place, whatever shenanigans, voter suppression or whatnot, last minute Supreme Court interventions to stop the vote counting to, you know, make things go out in your favor. But they, they're the winner. Therefore, you know, that is legitimate. But it, it's, yeah, it's the same thing. You start hollowing out that sense of legitimacy and the whole thing starts to fall apart. But there were kings that were, and I guess they were always somewhat paranoid, but you know, had long reigns, had successful careers as leaders. They built stuff. They either defended their country or, you know, didn't get involved in wars and saw their people fed and good stuff happen. And so they could function within that system of legitimacy. It was possible. I mean, when when the Roma, like when legitimacy was conveyed by the acclaim of the legions, you know, if, if the army thought you should be emperor, well, you're emperor. That's what makes you legitimate. That was a unstable system, but that seemed to be the rules that everyone played by. And even in that system, there were stretches where there were peaceful transfers of power from one emperor to the next for up to, you know, <laughs> up to five or six emperors in a row. Um, and for them, that was, you know, a good hundred years with a, with a good run. And so the fact that we managed 200 plus years of successful power transfers without armed violence over who the, the new leader should be, that's, I mean, I guess that's something to put in the wind column. But your thoughts on Mr. Trump and his obsessive need for validation and where that comes from, that's not just a petty narcissism. You're right. That also stems from a fundamental knowledge that they're not legitimate, that they don't actually have popular support. And so they need to bolster that with other kind of psychological crutches. I really enjoyed that commentary. Uh, it made me think interesting thoughts. So, as always, stay awesome. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So the timing of this has been pretty good. Dave is responding to a conversation that was taking place just prior to the legitimacy of our democratic system coming fully to a head. And now that it is in the process of coming fully to a head, the conversation continues. So we have right now a manufactured crisis of legitimacy in our system, but it's actually sitting on top of a real crisis of legitimacy. The real crisis is widespread voter suppression, gerrymandering, the Electoral College, and so on. That is genuinely threatening our system's ability to accurately reflect in a democratic way the will of the people in government. The fake crisis of legitimacy is what we've been seeing for a decade now. Accusations of voter fraud and vast unfindable conspiracies to hurt the Republican Party or Trump in particular. And what's happening right now is that the fake crisis of legitimacy is leading to a real crisis of violence, which is almost certainly going to happen. And so just like after 2016, the conversation, we heard a little bit of it from David Pakman today, the conversation about the need to understand Trump voters is kicking up again. And I think that it's different this time. I will certainly admit that four years ago, my instinct to understand Trump voters was, I would say, primarily a sense of genuine befuddlement and curiosity with maybe a little bit of, I don't know how much of it really is economic problems with neoliberalism, not that they would necessarily know that term, but that they're maybe attracted to someone like Bernie Sanders, but vote for Trump, you know, explain to me what's going on there. And books like Strangers in Their Own Land can explain how, you know, a person can feel so unhelped by the government that they then support the party in government that is most promising to not be helpful. You know, there, so there's lots of interesting things along those lines. And frustration about that line of thinking, I think, came from, look, like, there's obviously this strain of racism. This is clearly a through line that stretches back decades. We don't need to understand and coddle the feelings of these people. We need to defeat them. And that's a perfectly reasonable position to take, I think, just from a, as I said, a genuine befuddlement and curiosity perspective, I was still interested in understanding. And so that's coming up again with a maybe slightly different tinge, this idea that 70 million people voting for this absolute monstrosity of a 
politician as an individual and political party as an entity, it's not a fluke that there is something there that these people really want that is, is being tapped into. Also, I would argue you cannot set aside the dynamics of hyperpolarization. You just can't because what that creates is an environment where people will vote for a party that they hate because they hate the other party even more. That absolutely happens on both sides of the spectrum. And so I would argue that this call to understand these people and you know understand the psychology of, of why they would vote for Trump or be so fervently dedicated to him. It's not about coddling so much. It's not about understanding their feelings so that we can make them feel better. It's more about, at a minimum, figuring out how to coexist because that is becoming vanishingly small possibilities that that is going to be able to continue without violence, and at best, maybe figuring out how to deprogram people. That's a harder one. That's why I say at best. But what I've been seeing and and what resonates to me as to imagine why this wouldn't be true is, is beyond me, that militia groups and the Proud Boys and the people we saw show up to any version of the Stop the Steal marches from Phoenix to D.C. or anywhere else, that these events, I mean, D.C. did get violent, but these events have been as minimally violent as they have been because they still have hope. They have been fed this line about a vast conspiracy theory and that is enough to give them hope. And so in the immediate days after the election, when, when the election results seemed to be so clear, I definitely went through a day or two of sort of a sigh of relief. Like, okay, I guess we didn't have violence on election day, as many thought. And, and we didn't have violence in the days after, as we were counting. And then as the protest movements began to form, I realized oh, right, that's why we haven't seen violence yet, because they still have hope. And so one of two things can happen. The system can work as it should, and the legitimately elected person will take office, which will take away the hope of all of the people who are primed and on the verge of violence, or the system will not work and there will be a coup. Either of those situations is not good, and so what I am seeing going forward, and you know, I'm not I'm not big on predictions, but I would definitely say that based on what I've been hearing, and, and as I said, it just it the idea that this would not be the case is beyond me, that the militia is sort of waiting. They're waiting for their cue. And the moment they lose hope is their cue. And that might be inauguration day. It may come before that, but I read an article about the chat rooms, the conversational chat rooms where militia members hang out and plan to do whatever they're going to do. They say, look, like we are stationed outside of D.C. We are heavily armed and we are stationed. And when we are needed, we will move in. And 
the idea that that is not the case seems ridiculous. I think, of course, of course they're stationed, of course they're ready. This is the civil war they've been waiting decades for. And so, and, you know, as I said, I'm not big on predictions. It's not generally where I go. But if there are no deaths between now and the inauguration, or, or maybe slightly after, that would be, to me, the most surprising thing to happen during the Trump years. The anxiety a lot of people on the left are feeling right now is, what if the election is stolen? And that's a perfectly legitimate thing to be anxious about. But I think coming right after that should be, what if the election isn't stolen? What horrors are we going to face at the hands of right-wing domestic terrorists who we have been warning about for years and years and years, but that the right wing has sort of been working the refs and, and bullying the government to systematically ignore that threat. And so here we are. So yes, David is absolutely right to point out that legitimacy is based on whatever it is the people perceive to be legitimate. That really is how it works. I admit that when I did my initial commentary on this, that I committed that cardinal sin of projecting my own perspective back into history and thinking that, come on, guys, even living under the rule of a king, you must have had a sense like, this is kind of bullshit, right? Like, you must have. But look, that is really not necessarily the case. Dave is, uh, is right to point out that they could have been fully bought in to the legitimacy of the royal bloodline nonsense, and that that could have worked perfectly well for them. But to bring it into modern times, Dave is also right that it's not about the legitimacy being drawn from genuinely representing the people. It's about winning the election. But when that is the case... It leaves room, as Dave said, for chicanery, and that is what we're witnessing today. And, and we are living in a world in which we have hyperpolarization, which is feeding this. Like, that is the, that's the driving force. That you could have the propaganda and the myth-making and all of that, but if the parties weren't hyperpolarized then they just wouldn't have the same purchase. That propaganda would not sink in as much, and, and people just would not gravitate towards it as much as they do. But when there is hyperpartisanship, that drives the desire for something, anything that people can grab onto in the hopes that their side, their ideology, their party can win out. And so that's what we're witnessing. And so with hyperpartisanship being the driving force, propaganda, social media, all of that stuff, happy to feed the flames, and then the propagandist in chief, who's happy to pull all of those levers at the same time, we are coming to a point where, you know, maybe for the first time in, I don't know, you know, a hundred years or more, that the legitimacy of our election is being questioned for wholly illegitimate reasons. But half the country doesn't see it that way, and since your perception is your reality, well, imagine the anxiety you'd be feeling if you were living through a hostile coup 
take over from the legitimate president who you support. Well, you'd be pretty anxious and pretty upset about that. And so the results on the ground that we are about to be witness to is what happens when the most disconnected from reality people who are the most armed lose hope and come to the conclusion that their country is now being run illegitimately. It is not going to be good. And it is for that reason that I think it is important to understand these people, not to coddle their feelings, but to navigate some form of legitimate governance over the next several years that doesn't result in the Second Civil War. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Bestofleft.com.